sometimes, and that's uh, wonderful. Uh, my name's Steve Cunningham. I get to be uh, the lead pastor here at Wellhouse. Always grateful for the opportunity to get to serve alongside of so many wonderful people. We have uh, a lot of great uh, folks who just serve because that is what uh, Christ did, and that's who they want to be. And we have a lot of opportunities uh, for you to serve over the next couple of weeks, and Chris mentioned those. And if you're anything like me, you're like, I can't remember what was it he said. He talked about some dates and times and those kinds of things. We have uh, these cards look like this, and they have all the information on the back. So over the next couple of weeks, if you're wondering what's going on, grab one of those. They're at the communion tables on either side. Pick those up. They'll help you out. You can put it right on your refrigerator, or if you want to invite uh, a friend, a neighbor, whoever, co-worker to join us, uh, that would be wonderful. We're looking forward to uh, all the uh, great things that God has called us to do here as we wrap up this 2022 year and, uh, and move into a, a new year. And as we are kind of gearing up in this season, uh, we, last week we started a new series called Awe and Wonder, and, uh, and really the idea is kind of reclaiming in our life this sense of awe and wonder that we lose over the course of time. When I was a young kid, my mom loved to decorate the Christmas tree. Um, she's had the same Christmas tree, it's an artificial tree, since I was uh, in junior high, uh, so it's many moons old at this point. Um, she's had it for a long time, but I remember growing up and we would always go and pick out a real tree. The last year that we did that, uh, we bought a tree and it was like the, the trunk of it was crooked all the way up. So I remember my mom, you know, having my dad put it in and it was kind of crooked this way. So he cut another couple inches off. And by the, by the end of it all, I promise you that the tree was like a foot and a half tall. My parents were like, this will not do. Went out, bought an artificial tree. That's what we have. But every year, um, we would, my mom would select the date of, you know, when we would decorate the tree and she would meticulously, uh, as we all kind of just sat back and let her do it, uh, we, she would meticulously wrap every branch. She still does this, every branch with lights. There's tons of lights on the tree. And then she would have everybody lay on the floor underneath the tree and look up at the lights. And I would lay there and I would think, this is dumb. When can we end this, Right. But not for her. Not for her. It was amazing to watch her every year take a few moments out and look up at the lights and reflect back on all the years through all the different traditions and people who had been involved in her life and think about the ways in which God had blessed her and think about the ways in which, you know, 
her life had changed and moved in so many different ways. And to my knowledge, I think my mom still does this on her own now. And I think, man, isn't it cool the times where we kind of restore that awe and wonder in our life? Because so much of life can suck uh, the, the awe and wonder out of it. Like the, the things that kind of, uh, oh, what happened? Okay. I paused right at the sucking part, didn't I? So much of sermon done. So many things can suck. Period. You're dismissed the communion. <laughs> and the church said, um, glory. All right. Um, <clears throat> truer words never spoken. Um, yeah, so much of, of things in life can suck the joy and, and the wonder and awe out of our life right? The things that we used to find enjoyable, the things that we used to find fulfilling now are things that we just kind of trudge through. And so how do we reclaim that in our life? How do we look back? And then last week, we kind of talked about this idea that hope and wonder are intrinsically tied together. Hope and wonder are intrinsically tied together and that when we lose a sense of one, we often lose a sense of the other. And that's why I feel like in today's world, man, it's so hard sometimes to be a Christ follower because when we begin to lose our sense of wonder in the world, we begin to lose our sense of hope that maybe Jesus is doing something in the world today. And sometimes we lose our sense of hope that Jesus is doing something because we have no more sense of wonder or awe in the world today. And so we looked at that, and last week we addressed this idea that when we lose our awe and wonder, we mistake the means, or sorry, the end for the means. We lose our awe and wonder when we mistake the end for the means. And we recognized in the story last week, if you were here with us, you watched online, that, that there was a feeding of the five, we call it the feeding of the 5,000, but really it was probably more like fifteen to 20,000. And there was just five small barley loaves, right? The, the food of the poor and two sardines, and Jesus makes this miracle happen. But then what did the people wind up doing? They kept chasing the miracles, and they forgot that, that it was really Jesus they needed to chase. And at the end of it all, he says, listen, I'm the bread of life. You won't find life outside of me at all. And they were like, ah, that's not really what we were looking for. We, we kind of wanted more. We wanted the spectacle. We, we, we wanted you to kind of make us feel good and continue to, to wow us with everything. And he was like, it's me. And it says that a lot, from that time, a lot of his disciples deserted him. There's a few that stuck around and said, there's nowhere else we can find life but you. Where else will we go? What happens when we mistake the end for the means is that we lose awe and wonder that Jesus is ever before us and it's through him that we see everything we have in our life and, and we're just constantly amazed that there was a God who created the universe who made all these amazing things and he still loves us even in spite of ourselves. 
Today we're going to look at another story, another Jesus encounter, and we're going to read about it through the lens of Mark chapter 2. So if you have your Bible, you can flip over, open to Mark chapter 2, and I'll tell you this is found in some other gospel accounts as well, but today we're going to focus in on Mark's account of what happens in this story. And this story, I will tell you, um, really was pivotal in changing the way that I saw God years ago. As I began to kind of dig in and stop reading surfacy of the Bible and really start asking some kind of harder questions of my faith, this story was pivotal in how I saw God and restored some awe and wonder in my own spiritual walk. So let's open that up. Mark chapter 2, starting in verse 1. This is what it says. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home, and they gathered such a large number that there was no room left, not even outside of the door, and he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing a paralyzed man, carried by four of them. Stop there. I think what we read here is that there's actually a little bit larger group. There's a larger group, but four men carried this one person on a mat. But there's a, there's a kind of a considerable group that shows up. Since they could not get him in to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the man uh, the mat was laying on. Did I read that right? No. Yes, I did. Okay. Hooked on phonics. All right, here we go. Verse 5. It's going to be one of those days, isn't it? All right, here we are. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow uh, fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that this is what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, Why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, take, uh, get up, take up your mat, and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. And he got up, he took his mat, and he walked out in, few, in full view of them all. And this amazed everyone that they praised God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. This story, I think, hits on several different levels. And the thing that I love the most about this Jesus interaction is that it's a surprise for everybody. Everybody gets surprised in this story by something, right? Uh, And so I'm going to break it down today and kind of look at some uh, some of the surprise from various angles. And, and we're going to look at the friends who, who brought this paralyzed man to Jesus. We're going to look at our reading of this text and why it's surprising or should be surprising to us. We're going to look at the view of the religious elite at the time and why this was so surprising them, to, to uh, them as well. But we're going to start today with the friends. And I want us to kind of go back in this story that we read together and recognize that there's a group of friends who sees Jesus as the answer to what was really happening with their friend. 
And we don't know how many friends were gathered up, but we know at least four of them uh, had brought him on a mat. He was paralyzed. We don't know exactly what that story was about. But they get to the place where Jesus is teaching, and there's, there's not only a full house there, but there's so many people they can't even get to the door. They recognize that, that there's no way they're even going to get close to Jesus, and so they begin to look for alternative uh, methods to be able to reach him. And so eventually somebody amongst the friend group says, you know, I think the only way in is through the roof. And so they hoist this guy up somehow on the roof, and they begin digging through. And in other uh, manuscripts, we, we read that they have to break through a tile roof. Now, tile roof lets us kind of know in that day and age what kind of house this was, that this was a house that was kind of in the upper echelon. There was a, this was a fancy house because not every house would have tile on top. It would mostly be thatched roofs maybe mud, but this house has tile, so they begin to break through it as Jesus is preaching, and I don't know about you, but as I begin to uh, kind of think through the scenario in my head, I have a whole lot more questions than I have answers for, things like how big is the hole that was made to lower this man down? Did they kind of drop him, hold him by his ankles and kind of lower him through so it was kind of as small as hole as they needed to be? Did they make it big enough that his whole body could fit through? And how long did that take? What was happening below as they kind of heard the rustling up there, right? And all of a sudden, things started to fall through. Did Jesus continue teaching the whole time? Or was he like, are you kidding me? What is, you know, did, did everybody kind of stop and say, hey, what are you, what are you doing up there? Where was the homeowner? These are all the things that run through my head at the time, but I'll tell you, there's one question that I think continues to go through my mind, and that is, what was the hope and desire for the people who were trying to get their friend to Jesus that day? It was healing. And here we read this story where all of a sudden they do everything within their power, including tearing down a house in order to get their friend to Jesus. And as they lower him down, the first words that they hear Jesus say are not what they thought. He didn't reach out his hand and say, be healed. He looks at him and says, son... Your sins are forgiven. And I can't help but think for, for those men who were lowering down the mat and had great anticipation of what was happening, they were like, that's good. But we kind of showed up for a whole nother reason. I don't know if you're aware of this, Jesus, but this man couldn't walk through the crowd I don't know if you know this, Jesus, but the whole reason why we tore a hole in the roof, the whole reason why we hoisted him up onto, onto the roof to begin with is because this man can't walk for his own self. And so I'm super glad that you would be willing to say his sins are forgiven, but how about you heal him? And if I'm being honest with you, and I think if you are being honest with me, I think there's some times in our life where we lose a sense of awe and wonder because Jesus doesn't do what we expect him to do in our life. 
for some of us, we have walked through hurt and trauma. And we've wanted physical and emotional healing. And it's just never happened yet. And Jesus has offered us all kinds of other things, but that wasn't the thing that we were really hoping he'd give us. For some of us, we walk through grief, and man, I'm telling you, it's, it's, it's a hard journey. And to hear Jesus say, listen, I forgive you, you're like, yeah, that's great, but man, I would love for this person to be restored. I would love for my hopes and my dreams to be restored. And they're not. For some of us, the deepest longing we think we have is the loneliness we feel. And at one point in time, we felt connected and things were going right. And then all of a sudden, it's like, it's, it's a loneliness that you're around people, but you just don't feel the sense of purpose or peace. A sense of belonging like maybe you once did and you're hoping and praying that Jesus will reach out and say, all right, I'm going to fix that. And it just hasn't happened. And what I want to tell you is this. That even though there are times where those things don't happen, Jesus truly does address the biggest need that this man has. It's not what they were expecting. It's not what they thought would happen. But our deepest longings will never be addressed by anything other than the fullness of the gospel. As I typed that out over this week, I thought, man, that's the unsexiest way to say that. <laughs> like, is there a way that I could say that that would make it more catchy? Is there, a, uh, you know, when you, when you start to learn to become a preacher, you're like, things that rhyme or things that, you know, kind of click together. And I thought, that just doesn't, that doesn't nobody's going to remember that at all. And I thought, yeah, but that's just the truth. See, in this life, we continually long for things, hoping they're going to address what only the fullness of the gospel will. And this is what Jesus knows, that even though we see the outside of this man and he is crippled on the inside, he is as far away from God as possible. And the only way to bring him to God is through the gospel, is through this message that we are reconciled unto God in a way that we could not do on our own. And so Jesus reassures him before he does anything else, listen, you are right with your maker. See, I'm convinced that nothing else in this life makes sense until you get that and it makes sense. The deepest longings that we think we have, the physical healings, the loneliness, the grief, all of those things will never make sense until we make sense of that. And for some of us, we continue to search in this life over and over and over for again that only what Jesus answers in this man is the thing that will satisfy you and I. They were surprised. They're not the only ones who are surprised by this answer either. You and I, if we're honest with ourselves, are surprised. I don't know about you, but... And I read verse 5, 
I remember reading it for the first time outside of a Sunday school class or a sermon and and starting to become really uncomfortable with the, with the terminology. And so I, I flipped to other passages. And to, to my surprise, they all said the same thing. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, wait a minute. This seems to go against everything I've ever believed about God. I mean, how is it possible that, that these men had the faith that, that would heal this person of his sins? And this seems to throw out everything I've ever read in the Bible before. And maybe if you're sitting there, like, listening to it for the first time and starting to contemplate maybe where Steve is going, you're like, ooh, don't do that. This is what I love about this story. It causes us to be uncomfortable. It causes us and challenges us in the things that we think we know about God and how he operates. See, their faith caused a response from Jesus. That's not really news for us. shouldn't be. After all, we believe in prayer, don't we? And that's why we gather together as the saints, isn't it? And we gather together and we pray for one another because we believe that our faith in community is a stirring for the God who loves us so much. And this is exactly what his friends do in this story. But another problem arises when we solve that one or when we answer it is that forgiveness is given without being asked. Have you noticed that? The man says nothing. He doesn't say, listen, I have, I have sinned. It's not the prodigal son. I have I've returned home and you need to know I have lived a very, very sinful life. Forgive me. No words are spoken. And Jesus reaches out, and he gives forgiveness. And I wonder if that tells us something about the awe and wonder of God. What if God creates his own opportunities to give grace? Think about the woman at the well. And we read that story that Jesus had to go through that place. It's like he's, he's compelled to, even though he doesn't have to. And everybody else leaves, and he sticks around, and he waits for the opportune time to meet with her. And maybe he's looking for opportunities to give grace. See, you and I, we look for opportunities to not. <laughs> and it's hard for us sometimes to muster up those things and say, all right, listen, I'm going to be gracious, even though you don't deserve it, even though you've never asked for it. I'll give it to you anyway. But what if our God does something different? What if it's not a ritual that we have to go through? It's his constant pursuit of us, that he's continually looking for opportunities to pour out grace on his children. See, I think too, for too, too long, we, we have uh, become accustomed to worshiping something that 
does not truly exist. See, if the God you worship fits perfectly in a box, it is not God you are worshiping. If it can be so easily contained, it is a set of beliefs, it is a religion, it's a denomination, but it is not God. And the moment we begin to try to worm him into a specific place, a specific action style, then it no longer ceases to be God. See, if I can explain him and his methods and the way in which he interacts with humanity, well, then he's not that powerful of a God. But if he's beyond my own comprehension, if he works in ways that seem mysterious to me, then suddenly... He's greater and I become less. The thing I love about this is that Jesus is uncomfortably comfortable in situations in which I am super uncomfortable. He knows, he, maybe he does, maybe he doesn't know this person's background. He doesn't know what they're thinking around the room, or maybe he does. At least he does later. But he doesn't falter in his first words. And I want to tell you this today. If you have ever, for even a moment, wondered if you could get past the sin in your past, I want to let you know this is the first words that your Savior longs to speak over you. It's gone, and it's okay, and you're reconciled. He, re he surprises the friends. He surprises us, the readers. He surprises the religious experts of the day. He forgives the sins, and then all of a sudden, some of the teachers of the law, the people who know the Torah the best, the people who have the most, at least it appears this way, right-standing relationship with God, begin to have doubts and question, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And this is a legitimate question. See, their whole identity is wrapped up in understanding, listen, we, what we really, really need to do is make sure that we're following God the very best that we can. We need to get it right because we as a group of people, man, we've gotten it wrong so many times that we've been, God, God has thrown us into exile and, and we keep straying from him and we just, need to, we just need to follow it the very, very best that we possibly can. But what happened was they began following rules and not following God. So much so that they couldn't recognize when the Savior was right in front of them. See, the religious leaders became so focused on correct that they missed Christ. And this is huge. And I put the word correct in there. But you could put your own thing in there. See, I think sometimes in our life we can, we can become so focused on various things that we miss Christ in it all. That it no longer is about him. 
We no longer see him in, in what we do, how we act, until he addresses it. And he says, which is easier to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to get up your mat and walk? And for, I don't know about you, but I'm thinking, neither one of those sound real easy. It sounds like a coin toss to me. And he says, I want to show that I have power over it all. This story ends, I love the way it ends. This whole story that surprised the religious leaders, that surprised the friends that day, surprised the whole crowd. And they said, we've never seen anything like this before. And I wonder, what prevents us from feeling that way now? I wonder what that is in us that, that says, man, I have just never seen God move like that before. Wow, it's so amazing. It's so wonderful. It was so heart-touching. It felt, made me feel so close to God and what he wants in my life. Maybe, maybe what it is is to finally take God outside of the box and to say, listen, God, there is nothing beyond your control. And maybe the deepest longing I thought I had really isn't the longing that my heart needs. And maybe I just need to rest in you and trust that you're big enough and that you have it. And I don't have to pursue correct. I just need to pursue you. When everything else is stripped away, there he is. And your sense of awe and wonder is restored. In just a moment, we're going to go to the tables. And, and the table represents... Christ to us. That no matter where we come from or what's happened in the past, He invites you. And He says, Listen, you have a right relationship with me. So come, child. For some of us, that's hard. And we need a friend who will join us in that and say, Listen, on the moments you can't carry yourself or you can't have faith enough for yourself, I'm right here. I will never let you down. So wherever you find yourself today, as we get ready to be dismissed to the tables, know that Christ waits for you there. And he loves you. And he forgives you. And he's ready to fill you with a sense of awe and wonder in him. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine on you and give you peace. Now to him who is able to keep you from falling and present you before his glorious presence without fault and with tremendous joy. May you be swept away in God's love for you and transformed through the Holy Spirit's power within you. Thanks be to the only God, our Savior, who is unparalleled and unchanging, who is matchless and merciful, who is supreme and sufficient who's before all things and through all things and in all things, both now and forever.
you're dismissed at the tables.